Hey. hey. The appropriate response is, hey. How's everybody doing? Good. Good, good, good. Um, today, we are starting a new 13-week series. Count them, 13 weeks. I think that this is the longest series in the history of Westridge, and you get to be part of making history. I'm sure you feel honored. Um, but we're doing this 13-week series, which is a study in the Gospels, and it's called Encounters with Jesus. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' life a little more in depth, his teachings. And the goal is that as we look at these encounters, as we see these snapshots of people encountering Jesus at different times, that we could maybe picture ourselves there in that moment. That we could maybe put ourselves in the shoes of the one who is meeting Jesus for the first time. And we could ask ourselves, how would we respond? What do we believe about this person we call Jesus? And today, I just want to give us kind of a basic introduction to the person of Jesus and his kind of beginnings. And it's interesting because the same question that they had 2,000 years ago is the same question that we have today. So, who the heck is this guy anyway? Jesus Christ. I don't think that there is anybody who is more loved and at the same time probably as hated as Jesus. I don't think that there is any name that brings out a response like the name Jesus. Most people will say that they believe in God, but try to interject a faith in Jesus into that, and all of a sudden, things start getting a little weird for a lot of people. Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. There were more songs that have been sung to him, artwork created of him, books written about him than any other person who has ever lived in the history of the world. And today, he's very much a part of even our pop culture. Jesus has been known to make guest appearances on The Simpsons and South Park, as I understand it. I wouldn't really know. Um, we have Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts that uh, people like Madonna and Ashton Kutcher have you know, been known to wear. Um, we also have a Jesus piggy bank for sale, in case everybody's interested. And on the front of that piggy bank, can you imagine what it says on the front? Can anybody guess? Can you? Jesus, saves. Jesus saves. Isn't that nice? Yeah. We have Jesus soap on a rope for those who want to get busy about washing their sins away physically. Jesus is like all over the place. He's part of culture. He's part of conversations that happen every day. And the interesting thing about it is that there is nobody out there legitimately questioning the existence of Jesus Christ. Even other religions, Buddhism acknowledges Jesus, but says he was not God, but rather an enlightened man like Buddha, just maybe a little slimmer. Islam <laughs> teaches that Jesus was a prophet of God, but inferior to Muhammad. Hinduism teaches that Jesus was just one of many gods similar to Krishna. 
So nobody's questioning the existence of Jesus, but the question is, who is he? And I find it really interesting that everybody accepts the existence of Jesus based on the main source that we have for Jesus' life, because there's really only one place. I mean, there are some references in some old historical books like Josephus that make reference to Jesus, but there's only one book that we get 99% of our information about Jesus from. You know where that is? It's the Bible. And we as Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. In other words, that God actually inspired the authors to write what they wrote. And therefore, we call the Bible the word of God. We believe that it came from God himself, that it is God's word. And this is where these other religions and people realize and get their information that Jesus was different. That he was somehow unique, that he lived differently, but they still get their source of information about Jesus from the same place we do. The story of Jesus is found in the first four books of the New Testament that we call the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books contain the record of the life of Jesus while he walked on this earth. The Gospels were written by leaders of the early church. Um, Matthew and John, for example, were members of the 12 disciples of Christ. Luke was a physician, but still a very strong follower of Jesus. And then when you get into a more technical aspect about the Gospels, and you start kind of looking at a historical review, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are actually referred to as the synoptic Gospels which means that they are to be viewed together because they share a lot of similarities right down to the way they're written. If you're going to lay these Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, down side by side, it has most of the same stories and most of the same information just from a little bit different point of view from the other authors. John is unique because you get a sense that it is more experiential and more intimate and more affectionate about Jesus. So um, you'll see in the text that I read later, I'll put this to the test for you, um, while I'll read from the Gospel of Luke, I'll pull a couple phrases from a couple of the other synoptic Gospels, and you can guess which that is, and we'll test later. Uh, But from the time that the Old Testament closes to the opening of the book of Matthew, there was a span of about 400 years. So God had historically spoke to the people through prophets, through people like Moses or Abraham or uh, the prophets. And in this 400 span of what we call the intertestamental period, God was silent. There was this promise of a Messiah that was kind of hanging out there, somebody who would be sent by God to save Israel, but nothing for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes Jesus. You ever wonder why Jesus came when he came? I mean, why not come when Noah is building the ark? And Jesus can like hang out in the ark and do his thing, you know, hanging out with Noah. Why doesn't he come in the time of Abraham or Moses so that he can go up on Mount Sinai and help, you know, really draft the Ten Commandments or whatever? Why did he come when he came? 
In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this, and it's a little kind of overlooked phrase, but it's very interesting because he says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And it's significant because when the time had fully come, or we can also translate that to read that Jesus came at just the right time. Well, what's the right time? Why right then? We don't know for sure, but we can extrapolate a few things. First of all, most scholars will date the birth of Christ somewhere between 3 and 5 B.C. Now, if it's been a while since you've been in history like me, I'll remind you that B.C. years counted down into the end of B.C. and A.D. started counting up for the last 2010 years. So he was born in somewhere around 3 to 5 B.C., and they believe that he died somewhere around 30 A.D. So if you do the math, you realize that Jesus died somewhere in the neighborhood of being 33 years old-ish or so. And you have to ask yourself that in this period of time, what was so special about this moment that Jesus showed up? I want to just pontificate about a few things with you. First of all, and we'll get into some other things in the weeks to come, but just I want to focus on a few things uh, this morning. First of all, the time was right politically for Jesus to come. In spite of popular opinion and in spite of the picture that may have been on your church wall of Jesus, Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. Christianity didn't come along until well after uh, Jesus had ascended and left this earth. And so it's pretty important to actually understand some of the Jewish history and customs to understand the context in which Jesus lived. Um, The Jewish people had been under foreign occupation for hundreds and hundreds of years. So since 586 B.C., there was one empire after another after another who had taken over the Jewish people. Uh, The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans had all ruled over the people of Israel by the time Jesus showed up. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the Jewish people were just a little bit tired of being ruled by outsiders. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of living in fear. They wanted to be free. But there were some important things that happened under those empires ruling that happened during this time that created the opportunity for Jesus to show up. Under Greek rule, for instance, for the first time, there was a common language. For the first time in the history of the world, Alexander the Great had just conquered the world for all practical purposes. And by doing so, he introduced the Greek language everywhere. And it was spoken in that day as prevalently as English is spoken in the world today. So it was during this time that the Old Testament of the Bible was translated from the Hebrew language, which is the language of the Jews, into the Greek version known as the Septuagint. And this meant that there would no longer be a language barrier between the apostles when they began to spread the gospel of Jesus across the world, and everyone would have access to the scriptures, to what we refer to as the Old Testament. After the Greeks came the Romans, and when they took over the world, they instituted what was called Pax Romana, Roman peace, 
which provided economic and political stability throughout all the land. We could use a little Pax Romana today, I think. But it means that for the first time, Jesus, and more importantly later the apostles, could travel freely and safely anywhere, and they could actually go on the first road system that had ever been built that connected through the entire Roman Empire. So all of a sudden, you have complete access to the whole rest of the world that you never had before. Why is this important? Because it paved the way to allow the gospel to spread to every part of the modern world. Did you ever ask yourself, like right after Jesus ascended into heaven, right after he left, the Christian faith began to spread like wildfire? Well, how'd that happen? I mean, it was kind of in this little area of Palestine, kind of in this little tucked away part of the world. How did it spread so quickly? Because all of a sudden, for the first time, there was access to parts of the world that was never access to before. They could communicate with people that they could never communicate with before. And people had access to the scriptures for the first time. At just the right time, God sent his son. During the time of Jesus, the Jews were being ruled by Rome. And so you can just imagine, there were like Roman soldiers running around policing the land, and I am sure the Jewish people didn't quite like it. I know I wouldn't like it. And it seemed wrong to the Jews that a pagan people like the Romans would rule over and make rules, even about their religion, about this group of people, the Jewish people, who believed in the one true God. And it got even worse, because some of the emperors got really off with their egos and at times declared themselves to be a god that had to be worshipped by all the constituency of the kingdom, including the Jews. And the Jews didn't like it. And so there were a small band of Jewish rebels known as the Zealots who were causing kind of political upheaval, and they were creating little mini-rebellions and doing little attacks on the Roman soldiers. They could not, they were not strong enough to beat the Roman army, but they could sure make their life miserable much like we're experiencing in Iraq. But this kind of information becomes important as there are certain points in, that we read in the Gospels, like Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. How could they possibly bring charges against him? What were the charges they brought against Jesus that he could actually be crucified? This guy named Barabbas, who was he? How does he fit? He was like a revolutionary. Why was he released instead of Jesus? And then kind of the big question of the day is were the Jewish people really looking for a Messiah to come and save their souls? Or were they thinking that this promised Messiah were going to come and save their lives and free them from Roman rule? All of these things come into play as we read the Gospels and as we understand the context and the culture and the history behind the Gospels and the life of Jesus. And it was against this background that Jesus begins to teach. And he comes on the scene for one of the first times in Luke chapter 5, one of his first times that he gathers people together and has a pretty decent-sized crowd and begins to teach. And in Luke chapter 5, Luke says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, With the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, 
He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, Peter, and he asked him to put out, uh, to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said, Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught a doggone thing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So, just in terms of geography for a minute, it's, it's interesting that Jesus chooses um, one of his favorite places to speak from at this time. Uh, it was Lake Gennesaret. Um, you might uh, know it as the Sea of Galilee, as it's referred to in uh, the other Gospels. Ancient Jewish literature says that this was one of the most beautiful spots in the ancient land. It was absolutely beautiful. And the Jews thought so highly of its beauty that there was a common phrase that they said that God created seven seas, but for himself he kept Lake Gennesaret. Jesus loved it there. It was a peaceful place for him. Jesus did many teachings there, and it was also a very popular fishing spot. But it was here that Jesus would feed 5,000. It was here that Jesus would walk on water. It was here that when Jesus needed to get away to a solitary place that he wanted peace and beauty that he withdrew from. And it was here that Jesus would decide to call his first disciples who just happened to be fishermen. So, Jesus is just coming on the scene and not really known by anyone yet and not really knowing who he is And he's standing on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee as he begins to teach. And Luke says that there were so many people gathered together and crowded together to listen to Jesus that they were listening to the word of God, he says. Now, the interesting thing about that is that if you're a Jew and you want to hear the word of God, you don't go to the Sea of Galilee to listen to some newbie. You go to the temple or to the synagogue. You get the impression that Jesus' teaching was something a little more revolutionary, something a little more grassroots, something a little more Woodstock than it was some pastor preaching from behind a pulpit at a church, minus the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, of course. So what was it about this guy's teaching that was so different that people were crowding in to hear him? 
to the point that he had to jump in a boat and pull it away so that he could actually speak to the people. I've actually talked to the leadership team about doing a little water feature here to speak from it, but I think that'd be pretty cool. But what was it that they, as they were crowding around him so closely, what did they want to hear? What was it that was so compelling that Jesus was saying that they couldn't get enough of? Well, we know. We know that he would say things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus wasn't preaching religion. He was preaching hope and love and compassion. He wasn't preaching judgment. He was preaching grace. He was different. And the people knew it, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. By the way, did you happen to notice in whose boat Jesus was sitting when he taught the crowds? It was Peter's boat. I can't imagine that being any kind of coincidence. Simon and his brother Andrew and his other fishing buddies, James and John, had just spent an unsuccessful night of fishing and caught nothing. And seemingly they were just hanging out at the beach, washing their nets, when all of a sudden, coincidentally, Jesus just happens by with a crowd of people and begins to teach. And his boat just happens to be there. And Jesus says, hey, can I jump in? And we push away a little bit so that I can teach. And we don't know whether Peter would have actually, I always have the impression of Peter being ADD like I am. And, you know, so I, you know, I always think maybe Peter wouldn't have even sat down and listened to Jesus. Who knows? But all of a sudden you see Peter's a captive audience. Like he's stuck there in the boat next to Jesus as he's teaching side by side. And then when Jesus is done, he says something interesting. He says, let's go fishing. And I know what Peter's thinking. He's thinking, dude, you are a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. You stick to your gig, and I'll stick to mine, right? And you can hear it in his voice. I mean, even when he he writes, he goes, well, Jesus, we've just been out all night, and we haven't caught a thing. But, you know, if you want to go out, and I know he's trying to get an out here, but if you want to go out, you know, we'll go out. And Jesus is like, yep, let's go. And furthermore... Cast your nets down into the deep water and see what happens. I'm sure Peter is thoroughly offended. I mean, we know he has a bit of an ego. So he's like, you know, all right, whatever. Let's just prove this man wrong and be done. But it's like a miracle that happens. It says they caught such a large number of fish that their nets actually broke. So much fish that the boats began to sink. And all of a sudden, it clicks for Peter. This is no fluke. This is not a random thing. All of a sudden, Peter realizes that he's not having a casual encounter with Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. 
All of a sudden, Peter realizes that he is in the presence of Jesus, who is the Son of the living God. And I love his response. He doesn't sit there and try to convince Jesus of what a great guy he is. He doesn't sit there and try to show how religious he is. He doesn't try to wow Jesus with his knowledge of the scriptures. He falls to his knees and he says, Lord, I am a sinful man. 